chewing. We'll move on with the afternoon program. Can I have the music down maybe? Okay. Yeah, the music's down. We can now have your attention. Uh, we have a, a great afternoon planned. I think the morning was great. Um, and we're starting off with, I think, what will be a, a really uh, fascinating lecture. You've already heard from Dr. Treisman this morning a bit, who's eminently qualified to uh, talk about uh, pain and pain control um, in um, all of our patients, um, but also uh, the issues around HIV. If there are special issues, um, he is a professor of uh, medicine at John Hopkins um, uh, Medical Institute, School of Medicine in Baltimore. We hear that there are some people with pain in Baltimore, um, apparently, and we'll learn more about this. So Dr. Treisman. Thanks very much. There's some people with pain and there are some people who are a pain in Baltimore. <laughs> and uh, I want to talk about the difference between those this afternoon. Um, thank you for inviting me back to San Francisco. Um, I have, a, um, I have nothing to disclose of substance, so I'll disclose that I think that George Harrison was the best Beatle. Um, that's no, that's a something to disclose of no substance. Oops. So uh, these are my uh, learning objectives, and this is our question. 33-year-old white man arrives in the clinic having recently moved to the area. He states he's on uh, that triple combination drug that we talked about a little while ago. Bactrim, oxycodone, 82 three times a day. Uh, immediate release 10 for supplementation, Q6 for breakthrough, Ritalin because he gets sleepy from the oxycodone, Clonopin because he's nervous from the Ritalin, and uh, Ambience because he can't sleep. And then he was attending a clinic in Bridgeport, which has been closed by the health department. When you call to get records, they say um, <clears throat> the records are sequestered because there's a, law, there's a, there's a uh, criminal investigation going on. He says he will run out of medications tomorrow. I know this does not happen, this is just a fantasy of what could happen. Um, so you should retrain in dermatology, advise him you cannot provide any medications until you get records, offer him a one month supply of his medications and advise him to get records, discuss treatment goals in a transition plan, order labs and give him a one day supply of his meds and have him return tomorrow and give him his HIV medications and refer him to the pain clinic for management of his pain and opiates. Vote. Where's the music? There it is. I don't know, I can't vote without the music. And what do you guys say? Correct. Um, the, here, the, the only problem with this is this guy's in your office and the pain clinic will say we could see him in June or July. And that's just, I don't know, do you guys have a pain clinic that will see somebody like two days from now? Any of you? Yeah. Yeah, and, um, and by the way, they're going to see this guy and uh, they're probably going to send him back to you. Um, if he came from Bridgeport, the pain clinic is not going to see him because he has no insurance and no resources. Um, so um, you can give him a month's supply of his medicines and send him away to get his records. Um, you can send him away. Um, he'll go to the ER and get his medicines. Um, you can't retrain in dermatology because you've already made the wrong move and you're stuck. So um, pain is two different parts. Pain is a sensory experience and an emotional response. So there's two components to pain. There's the actual somatosensory experience of it, and then there's the distress 
So if you feel something prick your skin, it's much less distressing than if you look over and see a bee on your skin. If you get your blood drawn regularly, the actual sensation of getting your blood drawn is not terrible. But the distress is enormously variable from people who really have great difficulty tolerating having their blood drawn to people who think it's nothing. I used to let my medical students draw blood from me when I was teaching them, but I had regularly have a medical student who would say, I, I don't think I can do this, I'm going to faint. And I, I said, I, I'm the one you're sticking the needle in. So um, what we find is that um, this part, this somatosensory part, is quite different from this emotional distress part. And they are, in, they are operationally different in your brain. Now there's also two kinds of pain. There's acute pain and chronic pain. And um, you could talk about chronic pain being the result of an ongoing acute injury like cancer pain. That's not what I'm talking about today when I talk about chronic pain. When I talk about chronic pain, I'm talking about chronic pain that's the result of an adaptation of the nervous system to an injury in which the pain continues even though the tissue damage has resolved. And that's what most chronic pain is. Most of the patients you see with chronic pain, they have an old back injury, they have a slip disc. Well, it's all scarred. It's not, there's no tearing of muscle going on. There's no actual injury going on. There may be low-grade inflammation, but the pain is disproportionately large to that. And it represents a change in the way the nervous system is regulated. It's a change in uh, information processing. Now, in order to talk about that, I want to talk about behavior. And a behavior is a purposeful action. It's a motor activity directed at a goal. And uh, in 1913, Thorndike said, you have an opportunity to do a behavior, and uh, like buy a scarf. And um, when you do the behavior, there's an environmental response. And SAG says, great scarf, and you'll wear it. And SAG says, you bought that, and you'll not wear it. And this is, how, this is learning 101. This is how we all operate. Um, and this is the basics of behavior. And uh, it seems pretty simple to us, but actually it was quite a breakthrough in the early 1900s. And this is Ivan Pavlov. And he was a scientist working in the laboratory of a guy who was interested in psychology. And Pavlov was a serious scientist. And if you can't measure something in milliliters or in grams, as far as Pavlov is concerned, it wasn't anything. You can't, if you can't say there were 11 of them, so uh, he wanted to be able to measure something, and he, well, here's what he measured. He took this dog, put food in front of him, and measured 11 cc's of salivation over one minute. Then he hit a tuning fork and got zero cc's. And then food and a tuning fork together, you get 11 cc's. And then the tuning fork alone, you get nine cc's of sal saliva. And he said, this is a conditioned response. We see this in patients all the time. See patients who go to the cancer center, and before they even walk in, they throw up in the car. See the cancer center, throw up. That's classical Pavlovian conditioning, associative conditioning. You see the trigger, and you get the response. It's not volitional. Animals will do it. If I explain to you that today you're not going to get chemotherapy, you're only going to get fluid hydration with saline, you'll still throw up. It's not under your conscious control. The behavior is an automatic conditioned response. And it can kill you. So guinea pigs, which have developed anaphylaxis very easily, you can condition them, put them in an environment where you've, you've been exposed to allergens over and over again, put them in that environment, give them a shot of saline, and they'll anaphylax and die. Conditioned death. So con this kind of conditioning is very powerful in terms of what it does. 
Um, and um, here's an example of that kind of conditioning. This is a rat cage preference manipulation, dark cage, light cage, rat. Put the rat in here, he'll spend 90% of his time in the dark, 10% of his time light. If he co he'll come over here and get food and go back over here. But then if you put him over here and put a little gate, so he's stuck over here and give him a shot of heroin about three or four times, he'll spend 90% of his time over here and 10% of his time over here. You've reversed his preference by exposing him to opiates, to cocaine, to amphetamine, to benzodiazepines. A little later comes B.F. Skinner. Um, so if you just show this. So this is Skinner's pigeon. We're not seeing it. Hello? There we go. So here's Skinner's pigeon. He's pecking. Now it says turn. He'll turn. Now it'll say peck. He reads it. Peck. Pecks. Skinner says, can pigeons read? <clears throat> they can't read. In fact, Skinner and the radical behavior said, you can't read either. It's all conditioned. You see a visual stimulus, and you have a conditioned response. And um, <clears throat> Skinner said, there are things that condition people. Rewards for when you do something will get you to do more of it. That's positive reinforcement. Consequences that are negative when you do something will punish you and will decrease behavior. Taking away something that you want when, you're, when you do something will make the behavior go away. And um, removing something negative that's painful when you uh, do something will get you to do more of it to keep the pain from coming. So if I say, unless you press this button, you're going to get an electric shock, the negative experience will condition you to increase your rate of responding. So these four different quadrants are things, again, that we do to patients all the time. So if the patient says, uh, says um, I, my pain score is a 10, Dr. Treisman, uh, you, you have to give me narcotics. They're saying that because when they circle a 10, someone gave them narcotics reliably. And so they respond by putting a 10 on there because they get narcotics when they put 10 on there. Um, so here's Skinner actually shaping a pigeon. Um, so Skinner has this pigeon in this cage, and he has the little feeder controller. And there's the feeder right there. So when he pushes that, this pigeon will eat something. There he pushes it. And the pigeon gets some grain, pops up. Okay? And a light comes on. Now he's going to train the pigeon to go around in a circle. Every time he turns up, oh, that's all there was of it. Every time he turns this way, uh, I it got cut off. But it, he trains that pigeon in about a minute and a half to turn around in a circle. It takes me a lot longer. I'm not as good as Skinner. But what you find is pigeons and human beings and dogs and every other organism will train to these stimuli. Now, I'm bringing this up because there is a tight correlation between pain and behavior. And complex behaviors are conditioned in small steps. So I'll tell you one of these studies. Um, one of the guys in our lab back in Ann Arbor um, had conditioned a rat. The light would come on, and the rat would press a bar and get... Uh, Valium. Then the light would come on, the rat would press a bar, and a door would open up. The do rat would go out the door and get Valium. Then the light would come on, the rat would press a bar, and the door would open, and there was a little hot plate, and the rat would jump up on the hot plate and get Valium. And then each time he did the experiment, he turned the temperature up a little bit, 
And the finished video was the light comes on, the rat presses the bar, the door opens, the rat jumps up on the hot plate, his feet burn, little smoke comes off of them, and then he jumps down and gets his Valium. You can condition people to injure themselves. You can condition animals to injure themselves. If you measure in the thalamus, you can condition people to experience more pain. So we have to know about that. Now, if you get sick, you try to get well. And these are the reinforcers, the positive rewards of getting well. Social, occupational, romantic, sexual, financial, and your self-image. These things drive us to get better. However, there are abnormal illness behaviors, behaviors in which patients have been conditioned to behave as if they're ill by abnormal rewards. Um, and examples of abnormal illness behavior rewards are disability payments, attention from spouses, family doctors, and lawyers, your ability to express prohibited feelings. A man can cry if he's in pain. Um, the possibility of a lump sum payment, and then some negative reinforcers like relief from stress, expectations, criticism, relief from pain and discomfort. So one of my patients, <clears throat> the guy hated his job, very unhappy in his marriage, only thing he liked was softball. One day he's playing softball and he sprains his ankle and he goes to the ER and they gave him a shot of Demerol and a little bell to ring when he went home and a note excusing him from work for five days. And he said, I saw him a couple years later, and he said, and Dr. Treisman, you know, about two months later I sprained my ankle again, but it wasn't bad enough to go to the ER. But I just kept thinking about that shot of Demerol and those nurses flirting with me and how horrible my marriage was. And I went and got another shot at Demerol and pretty soon, I was going to the ER all the time to get shots of Demerol, and now I have jobless, friendless, homeless, and divorced. And I would give anything to get back my shitty marriage and shitty job now. Because it's so much worse. And this guy was conditioned by us to behave differently. Um, and this is, these are abnormal illness behaviors that we've conditioned. Now, um, David Edwin talks about abnormal doctoring behavior. And he, he's another psychologist. The, Izzy Pulowski is the guy who talked about abnormal illness behaviors. Edwin says, um, there are abnormal doctoring behaviors like looking at a specific symptom rather than the whole case, rewarding unhealthy behaviors with drugs, allowing patients to run their treatment, and breaking up care into separate domains. And he says, these are abnormal doctoring behaviors. He said, but to get an abnormal behavior, you have to have conditioners. So not only are we conditioning the patients, but we are being conditioned. We are conditioned by an emphasis on efficiency and money, a problem focus, short visits. Pain is a vital sign, the stupidest thing we ever did in medicine. Sorry, pain is not a vital sign. Pain is a complaint. Breathing is a vital sign. People don't come into your office and breathe differently based on whether or not you're going to give them narcotics. People do come in and behave differently with regard to pain. You can get them to change their rating scale just by how you talk to them. Um, algorithmic medicine and fear of lawsuits and guidelines, patient satisfaction, second stupidest thing we ever did, and improve compliance and patient retention as a goal distinct from taking care of the patient. And they condition us as much as we condition them. Not only are you conditioned by the environment, but you're conditioned by your patients. Uh, this says, watch what I can make Pavlov do as soon as I drool, he'll smile and write in his little book. This is a study from 1997 by Turk. What he showed was that you guys write prescriptions for pain based on nonverbal pain behavior. Not whether you think the pain is real, not whether you think the pain is impairing the patient's function, not whether you think the pain will respond to opiates, 
but with a patient's nonverbal, ah, uh, I'm okay, doc. Uh. And so we reward that behavior because we're wired to do that. You're supposed to do that. In your life, you're supposed to make people suffering less. Unfortunately, in complex situations of chronic pain, sometimes you make people suffering more. So how important are opiates in the genesis of chronic pain disorders? They're extremely powerful reinforcers. Um, they set up an unreasonable standard of pain control, as in zero pain. Last night, we were walking back from Fisherman's Wharf. My wife's knee was bothering her. Sag's knee was bothering him. My hip was bothering me. And we just we walked back. We joked about it. But um, to be pain-free all the time isn't something any of you expect. But if you give people narcotics, they, become, they, they start to expect it. The other thing is that opiates relieve the distress much more than they relieve the sensation. So if you're conditioning people to have more distress to get more opiates, you're not doing anything to their pain. And ultimately, um, opiates do a thing called uh, developing opiate-maintained pain syndromes, in which opiates actually set your brain's tone of pain higher. Because the pain is chronically blocked from taking opiates around the clock, your brain upregulates its sensitivity to pain because it's not getting any pain. And when it does that, the chronic pain gets worse. And that's called an opiate-mediated hyperalgesia or opiate-maintained pain syndrome. You can read about it, and there's cool models of it. We're doing it all the time. So um, what makes patients seek narcotics when they are not helping? Number one, their condition. Two, it relieves the distress in their life. There is a transient relief from pain, and they get addicted. Now, I'm going to talk for a minute about addiction because I talk about addiction a different way than other people talk about addiction. Addiction for me is a continued increasing repetitive stereotype behavior despite mounting consequences that disrupts function in all realms of life. That's a different definition than the one we casually use. How many of you are addicted to coffee? Raise your hands. You're addicted to coffee. Okay. How many of you have had sex in an alley with a person who hasn't bathed in three weeks for a cup of coffee? Aha! That guy's really addicted. <laughs> Welcome to crack. Okay? I was at a meeting where a guy was talking about, he, he heard my talk and he was talking about nicotine and cigarettes and I, I had said that cocaine is the most addictive drug. And he said, well, actually, it's cigarettes. I said, really, your patients will go in an alley and have fillet somebody who hasn't bathed in three weeks for a cigarette? He said, oh, God, no. I said, well, welcome to cocaine. Drives behaviors. So addiction is not just about using, it's about the drug disordering you. There are people who get truly addicted to caffeine, that is, they drink four or five pots of coffee and they can't function, they can't work. But that's very rare. Most people are reinforced and dependent by caffeine, but they're not truly addicted to it in a disordering way. And it's not a disorder if it doesn't disorder you. The problem with my definition is it's not categorical. That is, it's hard to say when someone goes from being truly addicted to being just using too much. And what everybody wants in medicine right now is a categorical definition. Two of these, three of these, you have it or you don't. Addiction is an ongoing process of worsening destruction of somebody's life by a substance that they continue to use and actually accelerate. So um, remember that little thing I showed you of Thorndike's? Well, some behaviors, eating, sleeping, and sex, are linked directly into the reinforcement areas of your brain. So when you do them, your brain releases dopamine. 
dopamine is that yeah neurotransmitter, and uh, and opiates the ah neurotransmitter. And so the baby cries, and he gets yummy milk, milk, and then he's satisfied. And then he gets hungry, and he cries, and he gets milk. And this is a positive feedback loop. They're very dangerous in biology because they drive behavior and they amplify it. And a cycle like this could make you chubby. I know this. And uh, why is that in your brain? Anybody been food poisoned? Raise your hand if you've been food poisoned. When did you think you'd eat again? Hear someone say never? Someone always says never. That's the person who is really food poisoned. When you're crouched over the bowl in hour six, you say, I'm never eating again, and you don't just mean at that restaurant. You mean, I'm never eating any food again, and if someone confronts you, you say, I'm going to get TPN. I am never eating again. But after two or three days, well, maybe some plain toast. Mmm, toast. <laughs> maybe some plain pasta. Mmm, pasta. And you start eating normally again. Because 100,000 years ago, when there were no refrigerators, no Zagat's guides, and no San Francisco, we ate a lot of really bad food. And we threw up a lot. And if you never ate again as a result of that, you couldn't join us here today because you were selected against. This selects four. So sleep, uh, probably none of you have had the pleasure of having your house broken into while you're sleeping. But I can assure you, you think I'll never sleep again. Then after a couple days, you take a nap in the sunshine. Mmm, nap, and pretty soon... And uh, probably none of you have been married to my ex-wife. But I, I want to assure you it can go really wrong. And you can say never again with as much conviction as you've said anything in your life. But after a couple years, you know, maybe some plain toast. Mmm, toast. And uh, I am happily remarried for 25 years, and my wife is perfect, and she's the best person I've ever met. But without this... I would be a bachelor and uh, probably eating nothing. I've been food poisoned too. So this cycle amplifies behaviors. But you can see how a drug which releases dopamine like uh, stimulants, like benzos, like narcotics, doesn't have a turnoff because it wasn't there when we evolved. This cycle can get easily out of control. And the more this cycle goes around, the closer you are to getting addicted. Now. There are competing cycles. There's work, hobbies, exercise, sleep, sex, food that compete with the drugs. But if you live in an environment where this cycle can get out of control, or someone gives you a drug so powerful it drives this and says, take all of this you need, it can get out of control. Um, things like the kind of person you are, the kind of life experience you are, and diseases like major depression impact both whether you'll do it and how much of it you do. And then genes and social connections and religion and geography and social conventions also impact these cycles. So it's modified by lots of factors. But it in itself is the addictive cycle. And so there's a baboon. When that light comes on, he gets uh, candy in that dish. And when that light comes on, he gets this drug. And a baboon will press the lever 50 times for food, 500 times for heroin, 5,000 times for cocaine. And Joe Brady said, I think cocaine's addictive. And he was right. So there are several important comorbidities that patients have. One is major depression. Depression turns off that yeah circuit in your brain. And it's off. When you do things that are fun, you get eh. Go to work, eh. One of my guys is a bowler. He'd get a strike, he'd say, eh. 
When he got well, he said, you know, Dr. Treisman, when I get a strike, my yeah is back. But when he was sick, you get a strike, you think, yeah, that's what's supposed to happen. Now, most people, when they get a strike, if they get an eh, they still keep going, because it's what you're supposed to do. But some people, when they get a strike and nothing happens, they stop bowling. Other people, when they get a strike and then nothing happens, they get cranky and irritable. So you can have depression and not be sad. You can have depression and be angry, flat, or even severely anxious. About a third of patients are just anxious. Because you're not getting your dopamine. But if you have depression, that cycle gets out of control much more easily because the normal things won't activate it anymore. But drugs still will. So behavior ordinarily give you a reward. When you get depressed, there's no link here, but drugs will still drive this cycle. And a lot of things cause depression that we see, like inflammatory cytokines that you heard about this morning, sympathetic activation and stress, decreased reward sensitivity because of those things, increased stimulus seeking by personality basis, uh, decreased need for self-preservation, and all these things impact whether or not you'll get addicted. The second key comorbidity is personality. People come in different flavors. And uh, this is a very simplified personality chart, but um, you can divide people up on a normal distribution between those who are reward-seeking, now-oriented, and feeling-oriented, and you guys, who are punishment-avoidant, future-directed, and function-directed. And you're mostly in here. My accountant is there. Madonna is there. And um, now-focused, feeling-oriented people run the world. They are presidents of the United States and rock stars and CEOs of corporations, and they are charismatic, now-focused, get-it-done people. And um, when Clinton got into trouble, my father, who's right about there, said, what was he thinking? These guys aren't thinking. They're going by their feelings. He said, that feels pretty good. If he was thinking, I wonder how this cigar thing is going to look on CNN. He wouldn't have done it. Now, these people are vulnerable. And they will say stuff to you that is so difficult to believe you can't believe someone just said it. My favorite, this is the all-time best extrovert quote in my career. Dr. Treisman, I've been very nervous because I've been buying cocaine from a guy who shot me. That's to get Valium. He's nervous, he needs Valium. And I said, why do you buy cocaine from a guy who shot you? He said, well, because he has cocaine. And I said, look, I really like prime rib. You can look at me and tell. But if I went to the prime rib restaurant and the maitre d' shot me, I wouldn't go there anymore. And he said, you know, Dr. Treisman, with an attitude like that, you're going to miss out on some really good meat. <laughs> the guy's not dumb. These people are not dumb. They see the world in a different way. And they are very, very sensitive to rewards in the now. And when they're uncomfortable, they want to be made comfortable. Not If you get uncomfortable, you want to be made better, because that's the future. If they're uncomfortable, they want to be made comfortable in the now. And what do they want to be comfortable? Clonopin and narcotics, because that makes you comfortable. Your leg could be right off. It's okay. Just give me those medicines. I don't care. Oh, I, I see. I hit the wrong button, sorry. So um, goals of behavioral therapy for these patients are not directed at the elimination of pain per se. The pain diminishes as you rehabilitate people, but that's not the goal. The goal is to improve function and quality of life and decrease iatrogenic morbidity. And that requires that you tell the patient that's what you're going to be working on with them on day one. The first day you say, 
This is what we're going to work on together. We're going to work on getting you better. You may be uncomfortable during the process as I taper you off all the garbage you're on. But if you don't want to be tapered off the garbage you're on, that's okay with me. But then I can't get you better, and I recognize that. Maybe somebody out there can get you better your way. Doesn't look like it's working so far. But maybe it'll work with somebody else. But if you want to work with me, we have to do it my way, because I'm not smart enough to do it your way. I'm a really very simple doctor. And I know that 500 milligrams of oxycodone a day is bad. I mean, you taught us that in medical school. I got that one right. Um, so you discuss this with people, and um, you develop a behaviorally-based plan for rehabilitation that includes rewards and consequences. If you do these things I'm asking you to do, I will get you these things you want. But I will not get you those things you want until you do these things I'm asking you for. Well, if you give me this, those things I want now, I'll do them later. No, you won't. Because you're extroverted, like Dr. Treisman said. And you have no credit cards. My cat has a credit card. I filled out the thing, and my, my cat, Shmoo, got a credit card. My patients have no credit cards. Their credit rating is worse than my cat. I tell them that. I sometimes bring Shmoo's credit card with me. See this? My cat has a Visa card, and you don't. That means you don't pay your bills, which means we're going to have a debit relationship. You do it first, then I pay you. Um, use cognitive behavioral therapy. Talk about behavior and thinking and not about feelings and treat psychiatric comorbidity. And you absolutely have to treat psychiatric comorbidity. Describe my role and your role. Explanation of the diagnosis and goals. Firm limits. Uh, can't do it, really sorry, but you didn't do this, so you don't get that. Come back when you've done it, I'll get it for you. I really want you to come back. I really want to do this for you, but you got to do what you're supposed to. I'm really sorry. Focus on problems in the patient's life and not about their feelings, and focus on behavior and rehabilitation and not on feelings. Target the patient's, the patient's behaviors you want to see. Uh, contingent time-related medic time uh, medications. Every six hours, then every eight hours, then every 12 hours. Not when you feel like. Never medicines based on feelings. Graded activation, the patient wants to run five miles on a good day and no miles on a bad day. No, you run a quarter of a mile every day until it's really easy, and then you run a quarter of a mile plus an extra block. When that's really easy, you can run a quarter of a mile. And they, wanna, they are leapers and, and, and bounders. They want to do it as much as they can on a good day and nothing on a bad day. And teaching them to do it in a graded way is really hard. In fact, I would say that's the hardest thing for our patients. Then social reinforcement. Try to get family, spouse, other, condition, other social factors involved with the patient as much as you can. I call kids. I call parents. Um, and confront behavior. So this is one of my favorite ones. Uh, I always tell patients, can't means won't, need means want, and think means feel. And when the patient says, I can't get out of bed today, you say, what if the bed was on fire? Well, then I could. Well, then you don't mean can't, you mean won't. Oh, fine, trick me. <laughs> I've had that conversation, or some variant of it, a hundred times on the drug addiction service. You go in the room, the patient's lying in bed, you say, you got to get up and go to group. I can't go to group today. Really, you can't go to group? No, I can't get out of bed. What if I bring a fire extinguisher and start to hose you down? Well, then I can get out of bed. Good. Then you don't mean can't, you mean won't. If you say, I won't go to group, you're discharged. So what's it going to be, pal? Discharge and out of bed, or group and out of bed. One of those two you get lunch. Ah, uh, skip this. 
Um, so patients want you to make them feel a certain way so they can do a certain thing, and I want them to do a certain thing, and after a while it make them feel a certain way. Treat depression, personality, and don't forget about the person's life because it plays a huge role in getting them to see the world the way they see it. Look for curable disease, analyze the things that are reinforcing behavior, and develop a rehabilitative plan. Treatment is expensive and complex, but it's a lot cheaper than the $100 billion a year we're spending on chronic pain. And uh, arguments about whether pain is real is fruitless and useless, especially if the patient dies of the problem that you say they're faking. <coughs> Conditioning gets patients better. Even if <coughs> you find out later they have a condition that you missed, they will get better, and that's good. Each patient needs a unique formulation and treatment plan, but everybody needs a program. And then this says, your insurance company authorized me to take out one, you pick. We won't get anywhere unless we're coherent about this. As long as the psychiatrist is there, the medicine guy's there, the drug guy's there, we get no way. Integrate those, you have amazing results. Thanks a lot. Oh, I'm supposed to do my question again. Sorry, go back to the question. So a 33-year-old man having recently blah, 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 blah. He's now taking the same amount of drugs as we did at the beginning of the talk. Vote. Retrain in dermatology. Advise him you cannot provide any medications until you get records. Offer him one month supply of his medicines. Advise him to get records. Discuss treatment goals and transition plan. Order labs. Give him a one-day supply of his meds. And give him his HIV and refer him to the pain clinic. Perfect. So, uh, by the way, um, you're going to talk to, you, you need to make sure the guy even has HIV, because uh, this is an actual case, and the guy didn't have HIV. He didn't, didn't have HIV, but he did, he was addicted to drugs, and we were able to help him a lot. Anyway, thanks a lot again. Thanks. Okay, we have questions. Yeah. Okay, so we have time for some questions. Um, I'll start. Okay. Uh, I was an intern at San Francisco General. Uh -huh. I had a patient for seven years in my clinic as I went through my internal medicine and infectious disease training. And I uh, was told to set up a drug contract mm -hmm. for Tylenol and Codeine and Valium. And in seven years, I was supposed to find an ego strength uh, with a drug contract. And even now, I'm told what patients who are on chronic analgesia to have a drug contract. Um, and the end result was that she stayed out of the hospital, which was good for the system, but I never found what I thought was an ego strength. And so I guess the question is, is there a role for drug contracts with people as you're trying to work through it's, you, other issues? It's, all of treatment with a patient, whether it's formally written down or whether it's conversation, is a contract. I do this, this is my job, you do these things. What you will find is that you can manipulate patients within that contract to do things that are good for them by using the details of the contract. So as an example, say I had a patient. I said to the patient when I went and saw the patient with Michael, um, you know, Dr. Sag's really worried about you taking all these drugs, but if they're helping you, you can stay on them. But you gotta show us they're helping you. You gotta show us that you're working 40 hours a week, that you're getting a paycheck, that you're out of the house, and that you're functional. Because you're just watching TV, you don't need drugs for that. You need drugs for function. And she, was going to work 40 hours a week for four Percocets a day. If someone go to week 40 hours a week for four Percocets a day, as far as I'm concerned, the Percocet is helping them. What you will usually find is once they're going to week 40 hours a week, they don't want to be bothered with the Percocets anymore and they'll ask you to take them off. But you're always working within that contract 
Um, and by the way, the other kind of contract are these drug contracts that are designed so the patient steps out of line so you can throw them out of the clinic. And sometimes treatment contracts are for that. It's so you can disenfranchise people from care by having them break a rule. And that, by the way, I think those are bad. If you think that the patient needs to be kicked out of the clinic, kick them out and say, come back. Don't wait till they've done something so horrible that you can't stand them. Say, come back when you're ready to do it my way. I want to help you, but I can't help you if you won't do what I ask. That's a different kind of contract, but it's the kind that I think is most useful. So 90%, well, I forget the, the exact number is, but somewhere over 90% of the people in this audience answered your question, come back tomorrow, and 91% don't sleep tonight, wondering what they're going to do tomorrow with this patient oh, what who you got do? a one-day supply well, what you of do all with, these meds. So what do you know, do tomorrow? What you do, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll give you an exact description of what you do because it's a great question. It's very practical. The next day when the patient comes in, you say, I think you have major depression. We're going to treat that this way. Your HIV test is positive, your viral load is this, your T cells are this. We're gonna treat that this way. You're on way too much narcotics and they're making your pain worse rather than better. We're going to very slowly taper you off. You're taking, I can't remember, 360 milligrams of oxycodone, oxycodone a day plus some IR. All we're gonna do right now is stop the immediate release. So you just stop that and we're gonna keep you on that. I'm gonna give you a week supply of that 360 milligrams a day of IR. Understanding that if you run out early then we have to do it one day at a time. If they run out early, then I make them come to the clinic every day, Monday through Friday, get one day of medicine a day. I write all the prescriptions on Monday when I see them. And I say, you gotta come to the clinic, and the nurses will give it to you each day. And then after they've done that for a couple weeks and find it really tedious. By the way, they're not above coming to the clinic every day. They got nothing else to do. Um, they find it really tedious. They're gonna, they're gonna make their weeks worth last a week. And then they'll make their months worth active. And if they mess up, you just go back to once a day. And then slowly over a year, you taper them off their opiates. And there's no hurry. And you set the taper and you say, are you having troubles? If you're having trouble, we'll do this, we'll do that. Meanwhile, you're treating their depression, their HIV, and they're developing a relationship with you. But the more you see them for two minutes at a time to say, great job, how was the last 24 hours? Great job, how was the last week? Those little short visits. Remember, extroverts are reward sensitive and reinforcement sensitive. So if you say you're doing great, that means a lot to them. It's a very powerful reinforcer, probably as powerful as the drugs, which is why I can get people off drugs. So um, I hope bring up your questions. So I'll answer. Come, would you come to the microphone? That'd be great. Can you come up to the microphone? Because I have a question to them. Do you worry about diversion? How you deal with that? Yeah, I, I do worry about diversion because, it, because we're being watched. Um, and the way I worry about diversion is this. If function's increasing, if I'm improving the patient's function, I don't worry about it at all until they've maxed out their function. And then down the road, I'll start tox screening them. If they're not doing well, I tox screen them early. The reason I tox screen them early is what you'll find is the medicine that you're giving them isn't the medicine they're taking. Although they might be taking addictive drugs, not the ones you're prescribing. And that is a reason to say, okay, now you have to decide whether you're going to come in the hospital or whether you're going to remedy this tomorrow. You've got one day to remedy this or you come in the hospital. And you admit them to a brief detox. But um, if, they, if they say, no, no, I promise, and then you talk screen them every week for a while. But you, that's the way you deal with diversion. Um, occasionally you'll see somebody who's been doing great for a year on four Percocets a day, and you talk screen them after a year, and they've no, they've no Percocet. What are they doing with the four a day you're giving? 
Well, they're probably giving them to somebody. They don't have to sell them because they're working 40 hours a week. So they're probably giving them to their daughter or their mother or their, or their, or their son-in-law or whoever. How much you worry about that depends on the relationship with the patient. Don't do the talk screen if you don't want to have the conversation. But if you do the talk screen, then you can have the conversation. You're not going to get in trouble for, diver for diversion of four Percocets a day. You're going to get in trouble for these kind of numbers, 360 milligrams a day being diverted. So those patients, you really do have to watch the big numbers really closely. And I, I do. But it's all about function. Do you always have to tell the patient that you're doing a tox screen or do you do it? I mean, because there, I mean, for most of us who are in sort of primary care. Or... I, I tell patients, while I'm seeing you, periodically I'm going to ask you for a tox screen. Three reasons. One, if you're addicted, you won't tell me. And I, I, I trust you when you're not addicted, but when you're addicted, I don't trust you because you're not you. Number two, at some point, having a bunch of negative tox screens when you get into trouble might really help you. And I want there to be a record of your progress. So I'm going to talk screen you periodically for that. And number three, I have to. It's part, of, it's part of the standard of care. And then you just do it randomly. And how much you do it depends on the patient. And if you want to say, I do everybody once a month so you remember, fine. But I try to think about each patient as an individual treatment plan. I suspect one of the frustrating things for many of us, so again, who are not primarily sitting in a methadone clinic or detox center or whatever, is this sort of interface. Uh, between our colleagues who are seeing our patients at BART here in town or some of the other detox or, or methadone maintenance clinics or whatever, and so the lack of communication. And do you have any suggestions for how we can improve sure, that? Because they don't seem to respond well yeah, get a methadone, to inquiries. Get a methadone program in your clinic. That's the, get a buprenorphine program in your clinic. Or put a liaison person in that clinic to, to do HIV care. Because Study after study, and there's a lot of them now, I, could, I have them in another set of slides, I'll show them to you, show that that kind of integration of care has a much better outcome than the kind we're doing. So get your own methadone program or your own buprenorphine program, or make a relationship with one of them. And best of all, have a psychiatrist and a substance abuse program and an HIV clinic all together. And you can do it either way, it doesn't matter. There's not been any demonstrated difference between us going to them and them coming to us. But Put them together. Becomes part of a federally qualified um, provider, I guess. Well, you can, I mean, anybody yeah. can get to be, even psychiatrists yeah. can learn how to use buprenorphine. Yeah. <laughs> Good. So do I have any other questions? I think that was a great talk. I think it gave us a lot to, to um, think about in terms of our own individual patients and our practice and where we go from now. Any other questions? Thanks Good. very, much. Thank very be, much. Be a therapeutic optimist.